Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome to Seeker Plus. Today we're going to look so deep into matter that you're going to question the nature of everything around you. I mean, that's what I did. So get ready. Today we're going to talk about what is matter. No, really. Like, what is this stuff? We're going to ask the fundamental question that's been asked for 3,000 years of how matter works, and it's going to be amazing. Who's ready to learn a little bit about string theory? I'm raising my hand, you can't see it, but that's what I'm doing. Seeker Plus takes a big topic and we break it down into chunks so we all understand it a bit better. So over the next 45 minutes, we're gonna get all up into the philosophy and history, physics and theory of matter. Okay, if you haven't subscribed and rated, please do that. But matter, let's kick into it. Matter is literally everywhere around us all the time. This episode, this series nearly broke my brain. It's so cool. So put your thinking cap on for this series. Firstly, where are you right now? Are you on a bus, a car, are you on a bike, you at home, sitting on the couch? What are you doing? Stop for a second, unless you're piloting a vehicle of some kind, then don't stop. If you're at home or something, stop and stick your hand out in front of you and touch the desk or the dashboard or table or couch or whatever. Just touch that and feel it for a second. Think about it. What does that feel like? Think about what you're doing right there. Your hand is touching matter. It's matter touching more matter, really. And what is that thing that you're touching? Is it wood? Is it plastic? Is it fabric? Think deeper than that. What is it? Is it atoms? But what are those? Think about it. Unequivocally, what is it that you are touching? It is matter. We know that. But what is matter? That's what we're going to figure out today. So let's kick into it. To define something that is literally everything around us, that is the hubris of science laid bare, I'm pretty sure. Matter is this huge, all-encompassing thing, and you're surrounded by it all the time. But at some point in ancient Greece, a guy named Thales looked at uh, the world in 6th century BC and thought, huh, what is this stuff? But in Greek, I don't, I don't know ancient Greek, so we'll just assume that he has a weird Midwest accent. Thales was a famous natural philosopher, which is what we would call scientists today. They would be called natural philosophers in ancient times. And my philosophy boo fails, he was fame. He was well known because he had all of these cool, interesting thoughts. He was friends with a bunch of other Greek philosophers, and he was the first recorded human to accurately predict a solar eclipse in advance. Nobody really knows how he did it or even how accurate it was, but he was able to predict it. And that was a pretty big deal. It meant that he knew something and that people would be able to listen to him. And so when he said, what is this stuff around us? What is this stuff that we're, we're touching? What is this rock made of? Not just rock. What is deeper than that? People listened. And Thales said, there must be some fundamental form to the cosmos, some organization which is kind of shocking. If you believe a deity created the world, there doesn't necessarily have to be fundamental form, right, beyond what the deity envisioned. All of existence, Thales thought, though, must have been made of something. Something must start and be at the base of everything around us. Aristotle said that Thales was the first to think about this, the first one to look into it. And he explained it as natural phenomena, not with gods, but with observation and testing. Thales invented the scientific method, but Thales wasn't perfect. Like, he sounds like a pretty badass dude, but he's not, because he was all like, matter is what makes up nature, but matter has a base substance, and that is water. Not quite right. Thanks, thanks Thales, on that one. 
He believed everything started as water and then turned into everything and then went back to water. Which if you think about living beings and living things, that does kind of make sense. You have a desert, you put water there, you can get plants and you can get life. And then you take away the water and it goes back to desert. But Thales wasn't really thinking as deeply as maybe he could. And that's okay, Thales, my boy, but it's pretty close. You know, cells are made of water. The earth is 70% water. Water is very important, but it's not the basis of all things, right? It's not, that's not what matter is. If anything, it's just yet another type of matter. But it kind of, to not make a pun, but it kind of doesn't matter if Thales was right about it. What matters is he was thinking about it. Thales was asking this question and starting the fire that Billy Joel sings about, right? Wood is made of something smaller and smaller. If I take wood and I break it, and then I break that, 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 how small can I make it? That's a great question. This question kind of hung in the air for a while until we discovered cells, the tiny bits that make up all living things. Cells were discovered in the late 1600s by a guy named Robert Hooke with a compound microscope that he himself designed. And in his book, Micrographia, which was published in 1665, it was a bestseller, he was able to show these tiny, tiny things with his newly invented microscope. And even though there were no YouTube commenters at the time that made fun of how he looked or sounded, one guy did call him, quote, a sot that has spent 2,000 pounds in microscopes to find out the nature of eels in vinegar and mites in cheese. <laughs> so even though he was essentially discovering how the world was put together, there's always going to be haters. It just happens. Eventually, we discovered not just cells, but that cells were made of something as well, and that is atoms. By the way, sidebar, atoms were actually first thought of in the 3rd century BCE by Democritus, and he was asking if we could break something up and then break that, kind of like I was talking about with the wood. And it was a philosophical question, pure hypothesis, but it was neat that in the 3rd century BCE, people were thinking about it. Anyway, atoms were not discovered until 1803. A Quaker science bay, John Dalton, looked at it and said, yo, there's got to be an indivisible, indestructible atom at the basis of all of this stuff. Dalton, you weren't quite right, but you were close, man. You were getting closer than anybody who'd been before you, right? Not all correct. You can divide an atom, uh, but still. Now we're down to particles, right? We got particles inside of atoms. They've got little bits of atoms. The electron was the first one of those to be discovered. Main squeeze J.J. Thompson discovered the electron in 1897, not actually that long ago. Then protons were discovered in 1911 in a paper by Bo Ernest Rutherford, and he let radioactive stuff decay, and it was hitting this thing that was a zinc sulfide sheet. So you turn the lights off, you let radioactivity decay, and as it hits the zinc sulfide sheet, it lights up with little bits of light. So he told his assistant to look at it. His assistant's name was Geiger. might recognize that if you're in the radiation game. Geiger was counting all of these little bits of light, and he was like, Psh, can't we invent something that does this? He did that later. Then in 1964, we discovered quarks. At this point, we'd already smashed the atom, and yet we didn't know what was inside of it. We just knew we could break it. So we started breaking them again and again and again, akin to smashing cars together to figure out what's inside of them, right? And we eventually, in 1964, discovered that they were made of these little bits called 
quarks. Quarks make up atoms. And just without getting too detailed, a proton, for example, is two up quarks and one down quark. Quarks have spins and also colors and flavors. It's real weird. We can get into that in a minute. They also then later discovered leptons and fermions and antiquarks and all sorts of other little bits inside of these atoms by smashing them together. Again, like smashing together cars and being like, hey, there's a seat in here. That's pretty cool. What does that seat do? That's kind of what we're doing with atom smashers, just real, real tiny. Um, and what some of these little bits of atoms do is actually still a mystery. Uh, a Scientific American article said, quote, up quark, down quark, and electron are really the only particles necessary to build a universe. So why do they have so many cousins? In fact, when we discovered the muon, which is another particle inside of atoms, one of the physicists was quoted very famously as saying, muon, who ordered that? Because we didn't need it. We didn't need a muon to make a universe, really, according to some physicists. So why do we have all these little bits inside of atoms? We don't really know. But again, to bring it back, this is all matter. It's around you all the time, and we still don't really know what it is. Also inside of atoms, you could categorize them more as forces, are things like gluons, which gluons comes from glue. It sticks things together. That's a strong force. There's photons, which are electromagnetic. They have no mass, but they're pretty cool. There's also uh, famous Higgs bosons. They're the things that give us mass. Uh, that's a weak force. There's also the yet undiscovered but theorized graviton that interacts with gravity and gives everything gravity. Um, and we're still finding all of these little bits. We kind of know that they fit together based on all sorts of different hypotheses and theories that have been proven and tested. Uh, and yet, we still haven't discovered them all, in part because it's real, real small. And you can only smash so many atoms together until you find all the little bits. While I was putting this episode together, in February of 2018, we discovered the Oderon, uh, which was theorized in the 1970s based on the frameworks that had been laid out in hypotheses, and they finally smashed it out of protons in 2015. Uh, the preliminary evidence is there. They still haven't officially discovered it, but still, it's pretty exciting for 2018. The Oderon is named that because usually these little bits of particles come in pairs, and this one came in threes, which is pretty cool. So to wrap it up, what is matter? Matter is literally just the stuff everywhere around us. It's distinct in that it's not not stuff. That's kind of it. Matter is everything, and things that are not matter is nothing. I know it's complicated, but this is how physics works. And I know we didn't go all the way to the bottom, right? What's below a quark? This is when you start to get really weird. So what are quarks made of? What are muons made of? What are leptons and fermions and all these things made of? That's when you get to superstring theory. You've probably heard of this. It's really complicated. But according to this, if it's right, all of these little particles are made of strings. Not like literal like shoelaces, but you know, little strings of energy. And they're identical. The strings vibrate at specific energies. So all electrons, for example, have the same resonant vibration. And the vibration energy determines what a particle is. So a proton has a different energy that attracts the electron. Get it? A neutron has a different resonance that doesn't attract either of them. 
but they're all just vibrating strings, filaments, the substance of the universe. So according to some of the nerdiest, smartest people on earth who've been working on this for hundreds, if not thousands of years, to answer Thales' original question of what is all of this stuff around us, what is matter? Simple. It's a one-dimensional vibrating string of varying energies that can sometimes be loops. <laughs> That's it. The question is now, what do we do with this? What do we do with matter? This is going to get confusing, so make sure that you pay attention. Solid, liquid, and gas. Those are the states of matter that you learned about in elementary school, right? That's like half the states of matter that exist. It's not even close. So your elementary school was not entirely accurate. There are six different phases or states of matter. We've got two condensates, then we have solid liquid gas, then we have plasma. So states, they are physical. In a solid, the atoms are allegedly hooked up and ordered into a structure, like a lattice, for example. When you think of a solid, it's really easy. It's a table, it's steel, it's rocks, it's ice, it's crystals. Uh, they have low kinetic energy. The atoms aren't moving that much. They're fairly stationary. And when you apply force to a solid, it's going to react in a very specific way. You can have shearing forces, or forces that kind of cut across. You can have perpendicular forces, or forces that kind of push down on a thing if it's flat against the ground. You can also have parallel forces. And all of these will be resisted by the solid, uh, depending on its atomic structure. For example, sandstone is pretty weak, so you can have shearing forces that rub off all sorts of chunks of it. But it still holds up if you were to punch it, right? Different forces do different things. But a solid, I think, we can really grasp in our minds because we see them all the time. They have to do with the bonds of the atoms and molecules inside of the solid. The stronger the bond, the harder the solid can be. On top of that, how those atoms are arranged within the solid will give it different properties. For example, metallic solids, which I think you probably know what that is, metal, that's rigid metals. It's got good thermal and electrical conductivity. You know these already. There's also ionic solids. Those are ion-based lattices. They're held together by charges. You actually are pretty familiar with one of these, table salt, NaCl. The sodium is positive. The chlorine is negative. So they're being held together by their charge. Then there's covalent crystals, which are strong but brittle lattices. You may not know what this is uh, based on its scientific name, but you've definitely seen one before because diamond is covalent lattices. Basically, it's all carbon. It's super strong because of the electrons that are being shared, the covalence of the electrons. But there's no springiness in something that's this solid. Solids that are covalent, like a diamond, is so hard and it's got so much strength and rigidity, it becomes very brittle, unlike some other solids that maybe are less hooked up. There's also a solid type called molecular crystals. They're weaker lattices, and they're usually organic or gases that have been made solid, uh, which is a thing that really happens if you think of dry ice. That is solid carbon dioxide. Um, it just sublimates or goes right from a solid to a gas. That's why it has all that fog coming off of it, and also why you're not supposed to use it in enclosed spaces. Um, theoretically, anything can be a solid. That's what I read while I was doing the research for this episode. I didn't know that. But think about this. In 2016, two scientists, Diaz and Silvera, published a material science paper about hydrogen that was made solid. Metallic hydrogen. 
Isn't that messed up? They had to put it under 495 gigapascals, that's 50,000 kilograms per square millimeter. It's very, very high pressure. Yikes. And in case you're wondering, because I'm sure you are because you're listening to Seeker Plus, hydrogen is a black reflective metal when it becomes a solid. Is that not awesome? So if you add energy to a solid, then you start to loosen those atoms up. They get more kinetic energy and they start moving around and then you get a liquid. The liquids have some kinetic energy, kind of a messy structure, but a constant volume and a high density. It conforms to containers of a fairly constant pressure and it's usually non-compressible because the atoms are still pretty close together. Funnily enough, liquids are not that easy to understand. It's really a middle ground between the solid and the gas, which we're about to talk about. But you know a liquid when you see it. Obviously, we're surrounded by oceans and lakes and rain. All of those are liquids. But if you heat or cool those things, they become something else. They're either a solid or a gas. So these liquids are, are very strange because they're in this middle ground, like a medium state. We can measure a lot of these things when it comes to liquids, though. There's whole branches of science that all they want to do is understand fluid motion, fluid dynamics. There's something in liquids called the vapor pressure curve. It's a point where temperature, pressure, and its volume are all connected. And it's a line on a graph. But the line doesn't extend all the way across the graph, only partway. If you graph temperature and pressure and test liquids all around that graph, if they hit that line, that's called the critical point. And then it will suddenly become a vapor. But you can also play all the way around that line, never touching it, and keep something in its liquid or vapor form. But if you're already having trouble with fluids, let's just go a little deeper and then we'll move on. Uh, in 1984, a guy named Dan Schechtman created something called a quasi-crystal. At the atomic level, it's non-ordered. It has no lattice and no structure. So that sounds like a liquid. But at the macro level, it looks and behaves like a solid. Isn't that weird? Again, whole branches of science studying fluids because they can do some really weird stuff. Dan got a chemistry Nobel for that discovery because it changed the nature of how we understood solids. Cool, right? Anyway, liquids are still weird, but let's move on. Add a little more energy to this equation and you get gases. Gases have no order to their particles. They have high kinetic energy. They have no ionization. There's no definite size or shape to something that is a gas. This lets them spread forever. No box, out of here. In a box, I will fill every single bit of that box. Gases are super neat because if you make the box smaller, the gas is going to push back on the box. That's really interesting. Why does it do that? For some reason in my head, gases are real sassy. It's like, you make my box smaller, I will push you. That's what they do. Anyway, atoms and molecules are distributed randomly in a gas. They knock into each other, and they spread out, and then they knock into each other again. And they're doing this a lot. The atoms of a gas are impacting each other so often that when you push on something that's like a balloon filled with gas, that pressure feels constant to us. But it's really all of the little atoms hitting each other and bouncing back all the time. Gas molecule speed, by the way, is measurable. We know how fast all of those little gas molecules are moving because of the speed of sound. If you break the sound barrier, what you're really doing is exceeding the speed of the gas molecules that are around you. 
they can't pass that pressure information on to the next random connection that they're going to hit with the next gas molecule, right? This is why the speed of sound is higher at a high temperature or a low pressure because there's fewer gas molecules that you have to exceed the speed of. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I thought so too. Because of all of these properties, gases have huge amounts of stored energy. That's why we can compress them into a tank and have compressed air that powers all sorts of machinery. And you can also have properties of atoms and gases that make them very useful, like helium, which is a noble gas. It doesn't react to things. When you supercool helium, it can be used in all sorts of scientific pursuits. For example, keeping the magnets of the Large Hadron Collider cold, and also surrounding them with something that, if something does go wrong, it won't explode, because helium doesn't react. You can also do things like gasoline vapor. That is explosive and can move around and fill a space really easily. So you vaporize the gasoline into a cylinder, then it explodes with lots of energy pushing the piston down and you get an engine. So now that we've done solids, liquids, and gases, what comes next? You add a little more energy to a gas and you get this like super gas called a plasma. Think of it like putting electricity into the air, a lot of it. The molecules of a plasma have to ionize. They lose their electrons. It's a state of matter number four. And plasma is high, high energy, an equal mix of electrons and photons. And it's kind of like they're too hype to pair up. The electrons are there. The protons are there. They're having a great time in this club. Everyone's super hot. But they're having an equally amazing time being separate. So they're not going to pair off and try and leave, you know? So the examples of a plasma are things like the sun, fire, aurora, lightning. Uh, the sun is a really good example. It's not a massive incandescent gas like Seeker Pals, they might be giants, would say. But it's actually a miasma of incandescent plasma. Just saying a good update on their end. But anyway, plasma is all over the universe. It's seen literally everywhere. Basically, any visible matter could become a plasma if you add energy to it. 99% of the visible universe is plasma. The properties of a plasma are it's electrically reactive. So if you think of a liquid and a gas as related, plasma is like their cousin. It reacts to electromagnetism because all of the little bits of the hot gas are charged. And it behaves kind of like a fluid. If you watch videos uh, that NASA takes of the sun, you see filaments flying off all the time. That's all plasmas. If it's de-energized at any point, it kind of falls back into being a gas. And all the little electrons and protons pair back up and become a gas again. Neon lights are a cool example of a plasma in action that you can see around you. Neon is also a noble gas in that same column as helium. And inside that tube, electricity is run through the gas, exciting it and turning it into a plasma in a controlled environment. It ionizes it, which gives off light. The red neon is actually the color of neon gas when it becomes a plasma. Isn't that cool? If you were to do it with argon, that's how you get blue neon lights. It's actually argon. If you want a pink sign, you use a red neon with a blue coating, and then you get pink. You know, stuff like that. It's kind of fun. So I know I said that there were six states of matter, and we haven't hit the last two, and we've done a lot of stuff so far. Uh, let me try and condense these. That's a joke, because these are both condensates. Um, I didn't want to break your brain in the beginning. So what you really do is you take a solid and you cool it down a lot more. You can also do this with liquids. Condensates are very special kinds of matter. You would take rubidium gas, for example, cool it with lasers, and then you get a Bose-Einstein condensate. There's also the fermionic condensate. These are super low energy 
The Bose-Einstein condensator BEC was theorized in the 1920s by theoretical Bayes, Satyendra Bose, and Al Einstein, probably heard of them. Uh, but it was actually first created in the mid-90s. And it's near absolute zero. So all of those atoms have such low energy that they start to behave as if they're a single thing, a single giant atom. Isn't that cool? They call it a quantum mechanical entity because you can see quantum mechanics on a macro scale. You can actually see them under a microscope. The condensation, if you read the actual paper, was first achieved at 10.54 a.m. Isn't that nice? Right after breakfast, before lunch, making a Bose-Einstein condensate. So weird. Nice job, kids. Anyway, another thing that condensates have is superfluidity. Basically, it's a perfect fluid, follows all the rules, no viscosity, no friction, conducts electricity perfectly, can be used to trap and stop light itself. So cool. Condensates are really weird. They stopped light cold. Finally, there's the fermionic condensate, which I briefly mentioned. NASA has a few papers that call this the sixth state of matter. Some people say there are only five. You can debate about it. Um, but it's also cold. Instead of social bosons that produce the Bose-Einstein condensate, these are more antisocial fermions. We're going to talk more about uh, these superfluids and superconductors and these more exotic states of matter next week because if you take these superfluids and you take these superconducting condensates and we learn about how to use them, we could potentially create things like levitating trains and ultra-fast computers. Basically, the future rests in understanding more about these exotic states of matter. Those are the six states of matter, but there are so many more than six. We are just getting started. Whatever third grade teacher you had who told you there were only three states of matter, solid, liquids, and gases, you should call them up and be like, whoa, what did you do? You could have told me so much more. Right? Come on. Or you text them if you want. I don't know. Do you text your teacher Facebook message? I don't know. Send them a high five emoji or whatever emoji you pretend is a high five because there isn't actually a high five emoji. We can stop light in a condensate, but we can't make a high five emoji? I think that one should replace going to the moon because it's happened more recently. Like, we can go to the moon, but we can't. We can create a Bose-Einstein condensate, but maybe that one's not going to catch on. Anyway, matter is crazy. We're going to categorize it. We're going to taxonomize it. We're going to break it down and figure out exactly how all of these little things work. And it's going to be super interesting. I'd like to have a quote from Seeker Bay, Neil deGrasse Tyson. The universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. And to be honest, after writing all these episodes, I totally get that. So, now we're going to talk about the future, baby. We can take pictures of atoms. So what is matter when you can understand it at that level? Well, then it starts to get weird. Solid, liquid, gas, plasma, condensates, those are super cool. I mean, some of them are hot, not super cold or super hot, but you get it. Anyway, they are super interesting. Uh, and there are way more forms of matter than just solid, liquid, gas, plasma, and a couple of condensates. Scientists are currently trying to build out every form and phase of matter. I read an article for this episode in Quanta magazine where Ashvin Vishwanath was quoted. He's from Harvard. And he said, it all seems comprehensible. It's like stamp collecting. But each is a little different and with no connection between the stamps. It seems to Vishwanath that it could be more like a periodic table, that there are elements, but they fall into categories. And at the moment, we can learn to understand those categories. Now, I know that this isn't a scholarly source that I'm about to read, 
But if you go to Wikipedia and you look up all of the different states of matter, they have a whole list there. And I'm just going to read some of these to you just to give you an idea of how many more states there are beyond solid, liquid, gas, plasma, and a couple of condensates. You ready? Okay. Excitonium. Neutron degenerated matter, which is also a good band name. Photonic matter. Quantum. Just quantum. Quantum spin liquid. String net liquid. Droppleton. Rydberg matter. Time crystals. Quark gluon plasma. Strange matter. What does that even mean? I don't even know. And that's not even all of them. That's just a small selection. Obviously, there's no way that we can go through all of these types of matter in 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, and most of these you're never going to see, and they will never impact your life in any way. Most are very rare, even in the lab. They require extra special conditions. They require crazy temperatures or pressures or circumstances. And we've talked about some of these on Seeker before. Excitons are electrons that get excited, and they make excitonium. They jumped in orbit and then back down. And they act in little groups. So the hole that the electron left behind becomes a state of matter called excitonium. They're not really sure what it is. It could be a superfluid or a perfect conductor. It could be an insulator, but we'll have to make more of it to find out. We've also talked about time crystals. They used lasers to spin a bunch of ions of ytterbium, and they poked them around at a regular interval like a beat in a song, but then at some point they stopped poking them or they poked them differently and they moved as if we were poking them. And that's breaking time symmetry. That's called a time crystal, and they might be good for quantum computing, and they also proved that time symmetry can be broken. It's really weird and crazy. But let's talk about some of the other types of matter that are a little closer to home, something that might actually be of interest to the average everyday human out there who just looks at matter all the time, right? For example, did you know there are at least 18 different types of water ice? Yeah, ice, what we would just call ice that's in your freezer right now. There are 18 different forms of ice that water can make. Ice, as we know it, is a solid latticework. It's a V-shaped water molecule that forms and collects together and then forms a solid structure, right? That's why water expands when it's frozen. It's a very rare thing to do in nature, but because of the shape of the molecules. Now, ice can also be cubic, symmetrical, ordered, disordered, crystalline. It all depends on the pressure and temperature that the ice is created in. So regular ice on Earth is called IH, or hexagonal ice, crystalline hexagonal shapes of molecules. So if that's just ice IH, there's also ice 2, 3, 5, 7. They just keep adding, so they just give them a different number in Roman numerals. So the newest ice that they found is superionic water, also known as ice 7, VII. It's theorized to exist inside of gas giants like Uranus and Neptune. It's 60% denser than the ice that we have here because of a cubic crystal shape with two interpenetrating frameworks. It was created under immense pressures and at super low temperatures. 253 kilogram force per square millimeter was used between two diamond plates, and they squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and froze it. The hydrogen inside of this superionic ice, or ice 7, can't stick with the oxygen anymore. It's just under too much pressure. It has to get out of there. So the oxygen gets stuck into this crystal lattice of frozen ice. The hydrogen ions can move around, which is why it's called superionic ice. 
that melts into a liquid at 47,000 C. The lead researcher at UC Berkeley says it's as though the water ice is partially molten. Isn't that awesome? And that's just water. That's just one of the many, many forms of water ice that exist. Matter is crazy. But let's talk about something a little more exciting, right? You didn't come to Seeker Plus to hear me talk about ice. So let's talk about degenerate matter, which also, again, good band name. So there are plenty of forms of matter that are just wacky. So degenerate matter is super interesting. It does sort of sound like grandpa yelling at a kid in a leather jacket, but it's cooler than that. Degenerate matter is super dense matter that's under insane amounts of pressures. Quantum particles or fermions can't occupy the same state in the same system at the same time. So let's say there are two fermions. They can't both be type A fermions. That's just a thing I made up to try and make this simple. It's a little more complicated than that. But just to give you an idea, one could be type A and one could be something else. But they can't be two type A's. When you have degenerate matter, things are under such pressures that this starts to matter. That's not a pun. That's just real. If you put matter under just unimaginable pressures, like at the center of a neutron star, for example, that's the densest material known, you end up getting degenerate matter. Because quantum mechanics keeps the matter from compressing past a certain point, the point where two fermions would have to occupy the same system at the same time, the electrons instead have to move super fast. And they're moving around so much that as the pressure increases, the electrons start to approach the speed of light in their orbit of the nucleus. And any further past that, they can't pass the speed of light. The entire system collapses. The electrons and protons get smushed into neutrons, canceling out each other's charges, and then blah, you get degenerate matter. A neutron star is basically a giant nucleus of neutrons packed as tightly as possible. It's the densest material in the known universe. It's incredible, right? That's degenerate matter. Matter is super cool. Obviously, we could talk about this stuff all day. And if you have any types of matter that you think are really interesting, you should absolutely tell me more about them because this, again, hurt my brain to write all of these episodes. There are lots of forms of matter, though, that we haven't even discovered yet. For example, superglass, which was theorized in the early 2000s. It's a superfluid that's been frozen into an amorphous solid. Technically, it feels and looks like a solid, assuming you could touch it, but it's got no friction and no viscosity, and yet somehow it's still a solid. There was a paper called The Theory of Superglass that I read that they said that helium-4, which is a special type of helium, might be able to create superglass. And you might remember from earlier, helium is very special. It has a lot of different properties because it's a noble gas. You can supercool it and do all sorts of stuff. But if you supercool it right and in the right conditions, it can make something called superglass. Isn't that awesome? And again, there are still forms of matter that we're finding now and theorizing about now. We don't know what this periodic table of matter, if that's what our researcher earlier mentioned, we don't even know what that would look like yet. So if you think about it, this was only theorized in the early 2000s, meaning we're still trying to fill in that periodic table of matter that I mentioned earlier, and we're just now learning about some of these new things. Isn't that incredible? What an exciting time to be a material scientist and materials engineer and a physicist. By learning about these things, we don't just learn about neutron stars. We also learn about the conditions for life, how the universe is put together, and our place in it. Look, quantum physics is 
really stupid. But the more we learn, the more we go back to Thales and Democritus from earlier, remember, before your brain got scrambled. We're breaking matter up. We're asking questions about what happens. Then we're breaking it again. And we've gotten to the point where we're not just breaking it, we're also putting it together and seeing if we can put it together under special conditions and what it does. As we put together a list of every type of matter, we're going to keep finding more and more little bits, little corners of matter that we didn't even know existed, that only exist when we put them together in a certain way. Like if you stir cream, it becomes butter. Someone had to figure that out, right? They had to milk a cow or a goat. Then they had to stir it a bunch way past what other people were probably doing, and figured out, oh, wow, this is cool. It becomes butter, which we can use for all sorts of great stuff. It's good on toast. Don't know if you, don't know if you knew that. It's, of course, ancient times. Hopefully now you already knew that. But anyway, I digress. We have words for things like butter. But imagine, you know, if you could just stir up oxygen and create a whole different form of matter if you just did it longer or faster at a greater pressure than anybody else. Somebody has to figure that out. Somebody has to try. And someday we will. Like a lot of other science, it doesn't seem to be super important to you right now. There's not a lot of practical applications for super-cooled bits of water trapped between diamond plates. But maybe someday, stuff like that will change the nature of the world. And understanding that matters. Thank you so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. Just a reminder, I'm Trace. You can find me on Seeker at youtube.com seeker or on Twitter or Instagram at Trace Dominguez. You can find the show at Seeker on Twitter. Again, come tweet at us. Use the hashtag Seeker Plus. Tell us your favorite topics. This episode of Seeker Plus was written by Trace Dominguez. Our associate producer is Victoria Barrios and production assistant is Megan Bates. It was edited by Duncan Rogoff, recorded by Matt Pignol, and the intern is Debbie Hainem. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We're so glad to be back. We'll be releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of our episodes on this channel. So please, again, subscribe and rate. We'll see you around. Stay tuned for next week's episode. I'm Trace. Thanks again for listening.